that we might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But one thing we need to remember, one thing we need to be sure to avoid is the idea or the assumption that we're destined to sin and that we cannot overcome temptations when we're faced with them. You know, if I were to ask you uh, what the first thought in your mind might be when I, when I say King David, uh, what would your answer be? Some children, and maybe some old folks too, might say David and Goliath. Some might say he was a man after God's own heart. But some might think of David and Bathsheba and the circumstances around, around that situation. King David, after all, was a good man who fell to the schemes of the devil in a period of weakness when he was overcome by sin. As we start our lesson this morning, allow me to make six brief points that I believe are noteworthy about David's sinful experiences. And by the way, I don't want to I don't want to say that, that she had no part in that, uh, but for purposes of our lesson this morning, let's think about these six points that I think are noteworthy about David's sinful experiences. Number one, uh, some might argue that he was where he should not have been. Let's look at 2 Samuel. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll do a good bit of reading in this area to start with. Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It came to pass in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. That is not to say that he didn't have any business on the roof of his own house. It may have even been common practice in those days for people to spend idle time on the roof. But the first verse that we just read said, what time of year was it? It was a time of year for kings to go out to battle. But instead of going to battle himself, as we read, as we can read so much about in earlier chapters, he sent Joab, his military commander, to, to lead the armies of Israel while he stayed home at Jerusalem. Perhaps by enabling him to be on the rooftop in the first place, this idle time that he had on his hands contributed to his sin. I remember when I was a, a teenager here in high school, Brother Frank Shipley, it seemed, all the time at the, at the end of a school year, would come to me, as I'm sure he did to others, and he'd ask me, what kind of work am I going to do this summer? What are you going to be doing to keep busy? There's a lot to that. He was always encouraging kids to stay busy. Of course, that's another lesson for another time. The point here with David is, how many times are sins committed when people are simply in places and in situations where they have no business being in the first place? So an admonition to us, I believe, is be where you're supposed to be and avoid places and situations where you may be tempted to sin. Second point around David is that David seemed to seek only the pleasure of the moment. He failed to consider the consequences of his actions. Picking up in the second half of verse 2 in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, 
From the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. She was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. He didn't consider the consequences of his actions. Thirdly, he acted as though he had no accountability. His actions were selfish on this occasion. He seemed to forget all about God, seemed to forget all about other people. In chapter 12, when Nathan the prophet comes to him and rebukes him, he described, Nathan described to him two men in a certain city. Look in chapter 12, beginning in verse 2. He said, The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb which he had brought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his own bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Fourthly, fourth point, we can see that David was separated from fellowship with God on this occasion. Uh, staying in chapter 12, skip down to verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over, over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Point number five. Having rejected God's way, David tried to control the circumstances on his own, but it only made matters worse. Go back to chapter 11 uh, to illustrate this point in verse 6. David said, sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark of the ark." And Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, well, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, 
but he did not go down to his house. Then in the morning it was so that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. He only made matters worse. And point number six, David's sin became obvious to everyone. Even though he tried, he could not hide it. Back in chapter 12, verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. And then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you've given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Well, the good news is that David repented of this sin, these sins, and we talk about it. Uh, as an example of repentance and forgiveness, as we should some 3,000 years later. But this lesson is really not intended to be about David. So if you were thinking those six points was going to get you out of here, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I really only mentioned to David, I only, only mentioned David to draw a contrast, to emphasize the fact that we can overcome temptation. David was a great man, but at least on this occasion, at least in this period of his life, he failed. Well, we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, but thanks be to God that we're not destined to fail when we're faced with temptation. We know this because God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Isn't that great news? In contrast to our first example of David's sin, we can be like Joseph. Joseph is an example about victory over sin. In the 37th chapter of the book of Genesis, if you want to turn back to the Genesis uh, around chapter 37. We read of a young man, <clears throat> only 17 years of age or so, whose life as he knew it was about to change forever. You'll recall that Joseph was the favored son of Jacob, and his older brothers were very envious of him, so much so that on one day... In a place called Dothan, they saw him coming from afar, and they conspired to kill him. But one older brother, Reuben, uh, talked him out of it. Instead, he suggested, let's throw him in a pit. His intentions, we're told, were to come back later and retrieve Joseph from the pit and deliver him back to his father Jacob. But Reuben never got that chance, because unbeknownst to him, the other brothers sold Joseph to a group of traders who in turn sold him in Egypt 
to a man named Potiphar, who happened to be an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. So for the remainder of our time this morning, I'd like to relate those six points that we just mentioned about David to Joseph's situation as we consider him as an example of victory over sin. So think back to number one of our points about David. If in David's situation he was where he shouldn't have been, where was Joseph? This is a little bit of a stretch, I understand, but Joseph certainly couldn't help where he was physically, but um, if we think about where he was spiritually, Joseph seemed to dwell in the center of God's will. We only need to read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 39 in order to illustrate this point. So look at Genesis chapter 39 beginning in verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. And then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had put in his hand. And so it was from the time that he'd made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's hand. And he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. The fact that God blessed him so is evidence that Joseph was in the center of God's will. You know, we sometimes can get discouraged when unpleasant things might happen to us. Joseph, in this situation, had every reason to become discouraged, didn't he? Those weren't his enemies that sold him into slavery. Those were his brothers. He'd been forsaken by his own family sent away for a measly 20 shekels of silver, which according to the footnote in my Bible uh, was the equivalent of just over $2,500. His brothers didn't value him much, did they? But isn't it ironic to know that not too many years from that time, Joseph was to be of greater value to them than they could possibly begin to imagine. So here's Joseph, away from his home in a foreign land, away from his father who loved him so dearly, who now assumed he was dead. Perhaps there was no real reason for Joseph to expect to ever see his family again. But Joseph ought to give us courage because in the face of adversity, real adversity on this occasion, he stayed in God's will though others treated him in such a shameful way. There's another lesson for us here in that one's relationship with God should not be judged by how one is treated by others. Uh, Appreciate Wade's reading from from the 22nd Psalm. Um, It reminds us of one who was treated badly, Jesus, as he hung on a cross. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 27. 
Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he'll have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. There were many who looked on Jesus and treated him as if he were a criminal, but that didn't mean he was not residing in the center of God's will. Only when we act contrary to God's will in the face of adversity can we be hurt by adversity. Regardless of how others treat you, center your life in God's will. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10. Jesus in His Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Point number two. While David failed to recognize or consider uh, beforehand the consequences of his sin, Joseph seemed to not only consider them, uh, not only recognize them, He seemed to maximize the consequences of sin. Because after all, when he was faced with temptation, what did he do? He ran. Look at Genesis chapter 39. The second half, at the end of verse 6, it says Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what's with me in the house, and he's committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So it was, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside that she caught him by his garment saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. He ran. So what do I mean when I say he maximized the consequences of sin? Think about the the opposite of the term maximize. So many times... Don't we try to minimize or trivialize in our minds the effects or the consequences of sin when we're faced with temptation? In order to justify what we're about to do, maybe we try to tell ourselves it won't be that bad or others do it all the time. No one's going to get hurt because nobody's going to know. Well, maybe David had those feelings that no one would ever know about his sin. But Joseph didn't do that. He realized and recognized the maximum consequences of sin on this occasion 
by seeing it not only as a sin against Potiphar and against Potiphar's wife, but a sin against himself, against God's order of marriage, and most importantly, he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 says, flee sexual immorality. When such a situation presents itself, it is not a time to tarry. It's time to leave. Sexual immorality is not something that can be lightly regarded. It's a grievous sin that wrecks marriages, denies children the benefit of both parents and the home. It can ruin a person's health and reputation and a myriad of other effects, the most serious of which is the fact that it can condemn one's soul. Yet the devil conveniently arranges things so that we don't always see those negative effects oftentimes until it's too late. Sexual immorality, of course, is just one example of a sin that can have devastating consequences. So we need to have the eyes that Joseph had. We need to be able to see and maximize the consequences of sin before we fall to temptation. Point number three. Although David acted as though he had no accountability on that occasion, Joseph realized that he was both answerable and accountable to others for his actions. This is closely related to the previous point, but not exactly the same. Back in chapter 39, verse 8, Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Look, my master does not know what's with me in the house, and he's committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? We need to recognize that we are answerable for our actions. Who was Joseph answerable to? Well, first, he recognized that he was answerable to his master or his employer, Potiphar. What would happen if Joseph had sinned with Potiphar's wife and Potiphar found out about it? Well, to answer that question, we don't need to look much further. We only need to, to scroll down a few verses and see what happened when the woman lied about him. Beginning in verse 13 of Genesis 39, so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying, See, he's brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice and it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until his master came home. And then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to me to mock me. And so it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Joseph also recognized the fact that he was answerable to his God. 
And it serves no purpose to ask the question, what if God found out about it? Because God not only knows what we did when we did it, He knows what we're going to do before we do it. And knowing what we know about Joseph, he was answerable to his own conscience. Do you think he could have lived with himself if he had sinned with Potiphar's wife? When a man ignores his own conscience, he can become hardened to the point that he can sin without feeling. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to licentiousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. We must also recognize that we're not just answerable to others, we're accountable to others for our actions. Not only are we accountable to our employer, to our family, to God, and to our own conscience, but as a body of believers, we're accountable to one another. When one has slipped into some sinful situation, whether it's sexual immorality, any number of things, even lack of attendance, he or she should not be surprised or offended if their brothers and sisters in Christ want to talk to them about it. Our accountability to one another helps us to live right, and God intended for that to be so. Point number four. While David was out of fellowship with God during this period of sinfulness, Joseph remained close to God at all times. He was close to God when things got bad. He was close to God when things got worse. Back in Genesis chapter 39, beginning in verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him, and he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put in his hand. And so it was from the time that he'd made him overseer of his house and all that he had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. And then after Joseph was thrown into prison, scroll down to verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. You know, this should be a lesson to us that a man can still maintain fellowship with God no matter how bad the circumstances of this life may seem around him. Joseph did. And there's another that we read about, a beggar Lazarus whom Jesus spoke about in a parable in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus 
full of sores who was laid at his gate, just desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried, and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So he cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. These examples of Joseph and Lazarus should give us all courage no matter what we face. You know, God wants to be close to man, but he will force himself on no man. Uh, James teaches us in James chapter 4 that it is in our hands, it is under our control whether or not we're close to God. Look at James chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. James writes, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. There are many who uh, cannot draw close to God because they find it so difficult to humble themselves before God and to admit that they need someone greater than self. Joseph needed God in his life. Can you imagine how that story would have gone without God in Joseph's life? Been a completely different outcome, wouldn't it? Well, point number five, while David uh, just made matters worse by trying to manipulate the circumstances of his sin, Joseph accepted his circumstances as from God. When Joseph's brothers fell before him, begging him uh, for forgiveness, in Genesis chapter 50, let's look at Joseph's response to illustrate this point. Joseph said in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph recognized that God was at work. God turned what the brothers intended as bad into good. As they schemed evil, God planned to turn the situation to good. As they sought to destroy one young boy, God sought to save an entire nation. It's important for us to realize all this didn't just happen. Joseph had faith to trust that God would work it for good. Maybe he didn't realize or understand for many years what God was doing, but even as Joseph sat in prison, he knew that God could work. And look back to Genesis chapter 40. In Genesis chapter 40 uh, and verse 14, 
he said to the Pharaoh's butler, Remember me when it's well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into dungeon. Yet, as we know the story, um, upon his release from prison, this chief butler did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. It'd be another two long years before this man would help Joseph. We don't always know, and we don't always need to know what's God, what God is doing uh, for us in order for us to have faith and confidence that God's at work and God is in control. And the last point this morning regarding Joseph's example of victory over sin is that while David's sin was obvious to everyone, Joseph's fellowship with God was obvious to everyone. We've read these passages a number of times already. I'm going to read them again. Genesis chapter 39, verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Drop down to verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison, whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's hand because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. And then look what Pharaoh said about him in chapter 41 in verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this? a man in whom is the Spirit of God? What an honor for Joseph that those around him, these Egyptians no less, recognized that God was with him. They honored him. They promoted Joseph because they knew he was in fellowship with God. Likewise, God can give us favor with others because of our faith in him. If people know anything about us, shouldn't they first know that we're in fellowship with God? In closing, this story of Joseph is not just a story about some unfortunate events that happened to a young man. The story of Joseph began in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 2 by saying, this is the history of Jacob. This is a key part of the story of God's plan for redeeming man. God was making good on his promise to Abraham to bring a Savior into the world. He was preserving the nation of Jacob or Israel and he was using this young man of good character to that end. So a question we should ask of ourselves is, could God use me for his good purposes, whatever that might be? And then lastly, while we acknowledge that we can fall victim to terrible sin as did David, we also glory in the fact that by faith in our God, we, like Joseph, can instead have victory over sin. We don't have to fall into the devil's trap. Isn't it comforting to know that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. By loving God and man, 
by having confidence that God's blessing will be upon a life of faith, by avoiding places and situations where we might be tempted, and by preparing ourselves to resist temptations when we're faced with them, we can have victory over sin. If we can assist you with anything this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.